There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We should be like crayon namers, though. Like name the colors of crayons. Like I'd be about that shit. That would be amazing. Also, I just realized my beer descriptions would be, it's good. <laughs> I like it. I don't like it. Those are the options. girl hey 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 person whose name is celeste oh have we moved away from celestial hey celestial (laughs) you know what i recognize somebody else had asked me like bro you went by celestial in high school you're a fucking idiot and i really sat with that and i thought about it and i was like you know what this is how i know i'm not high maintenance now because i have been high maintenance in my life and that's just not my vibe anymore So the celestial thing was truly like a journey of my evolution as a human. It's like that would be your Powerpuff Girl name if you were a Powerpuff Girl. Yeah, fuck yeah, for sure. How are you today? I am good. Better now that I'm recovered from a migraine that I had yesterday. So yay for drugs. Yay, drugs. Also, tell me about your collaboration episode that you did. I have not yet had the opportunity to listen to it, but I'm really excited. But tell me about it. How was it? It was so much fun. I went on Anime Talk with Matt St. Jack and we discussed our like intro animes and some of our favorite animes. We reviewed some and it was just a really great time. Listeners, if you haven't checked it out, go check it out. It's amazing. And honestly, this is me being super creepy. Matt's voice is so soothing. So fucking good. He could read a dictionary and I would be like all about it. Yes. Agreed. Agreed completely. Matt's voice is beautiful. Oh my goodness. Agreed. 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 And also like shout out to Bay. I love Matt. He's my bestest on Twitter. I love, love, love him. So shout out to Anime Talk. Just nothing but love. And I love that you were on that show. And I really, really can't wait to listen. Today was just absolute fucking insanity. So I just haven't had the chance. It took me four hours to get through the episode because today was also insanity at work, so I hear you there. I honestly feel like we talked about like three things and they were all work-related. Yep, this is true. (laughs) So we're going to approach today a little bit differently because we do have a special guest today. I'm saying that up front. Uh, We have the wonderful and beautiful and magnificent Dr. Catherine Sheffield from A Few Bad Apples joining us today for our episode. However, she will not be able to join us until just a little bit later. We have a huge time zone difference. So to be cognizant of people's schedules and kids and all the things that come with life, we are going to just 
just kind of start this episode. And we're going to give Kat a call a little bit later to get her in the conversation with us for really like the part of the conversation that's really like the focus here. Uh, We're going to get through a little bit of history and some information about us as a show because I recognize we don't do that and you're looking at me so that we do that. And then we'll call Kat. I'm actually looking at you because our listeners don't know why we're calling Kat. I know. I'm going to get there. I'm going to... I was planning on it. Did I not do good? We can make that now. Oh. <laughs> if you'd like. Okay. Well, I thought I thought maybe first, maybe we should like introduce ourselves to in the show and things. I just work here. I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to be doing right now. Hi, I'm Allie. Hi, I'm Celeste. Uh, welcome to Taboos. That part I got. I know how to do that. Welcome to Taboos. If you're new here, we're stupid excited to have you. This episode especially, it's going to be amazing and incredible and fantastic. And it honestly came from my soul. Uh, my DNA is embedded in this research and this episode and every single aspect of this piece specifically. So welcome to our show. Welcome to this episode and buckle up. We discuss taboo topics and things that have stigma in society that people would prefer we probably don't talk about. And I think this is episode 30 and we still kind of only half know what we're doing. I believe you're correct and can confirm on both points. As made obvious by this intro. (laughs) Okay, so next step, we talk about what we're drinking, right? Yeah, I think that's next on the, uh, yep, here, mm-hmm. my checklist, mm-hmm. drinking. Check, check on the, okay, check, okay, great, excellent. What are you drinking, my love? I am so excited because I finally fucking found my purple haze. A burrito! Yes, girl. Yeah, still not the name of the company. Shut your mouth, let me do me, but yes, I love it. That can is so fucking dope. Yeah, it's it's Woodstock, 100%. So it is by Abita Brewing Company, and it is a raspberry lager, and there is no description other than raspberry lager. You should definitely continue to turn it in the exact same direction and rotation that you were. I'm sure that's helpful if you just look at the same exact spot over and over. Okay, you have itty bitty hands. <laughs> I have gigantic hands. I can turn the whole fucking can in my hand in one go. Thank you. I don't even have like a good nickname for you for your hands, except for... Oh, God, you would hate if I say it, but you have Donald Trump hands. Shut the fuck up. I will murder you in your sleep. It's okay. You have Trump hands. I have Yeti hands. What a beautiful couple we make. We're fine. Combined, we have the best, (laughs) most optimum hand. Either they're big enough to handle it or small enough to handle it. (laughs) What are you drinking today? I have a delightful beverage. It is called... Are you ready? I am. It's called Son of a Juice. Oh, that's pretty great. It's a little baby juice oh, inside that's of the really juice. Oh, cute. At first, I thought you were going to say it had something to do with apples. That would have been a really great idea, but I liked Son of a Juice because it made me want to say Son of a Bitch, and I feel like we're going to be talking about some Sons of Bitches today, so that's why I went there. Works for me. Thank you. May I describe my Son of a Juice? Because it's so amazing. I would love to hear what it's like, considering the fact that mine is just raspberry lager. <laughs> 
No details included. Um, so mine is described as juicy, juicy, juicy. There is a lot in here. Like, holy shit. I don't even know how to read this, to be honest. The grains are described as pilsner, flaked oats, golden nugget oats. The hops are described as mosaic, Simcoe, nugget, and warrior. And the vitals are a lot of things that I don't understand, except it's a 6.3% alcohol. And it says be fluid. Like, I think that that is the... Did you try turning it some more? I have little hands, Allie, so I have to rotate it, like, all the way. Um, Somewhere on here it says, chip off the old hop, which I actually think is really cute. And it's an India pale ale, and it's literally fucking delicious. It, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's the perfect thing for today. That's excellent. It sounds really good. And once again, I feel like people that describe beers are better at describing beers than I am at describing beautiful landscapes or something of that nature. Are we still saying this because you said raspberry lager? No, like all of those words were so descriptive of a beer. And I'm like, I don't even use that many words to describe beautiful scenery. So, okay. That's fair. That's totally fair. And also like, just let me drink it. AKA that's not a job in my future. So what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to be talking about a lot of things. And I'm not trying to be cryptic. I'm really being serious. I need everybody to understand going into this episode that we will be covering an entire spectrum of a conversation that society would rather we didn't talk about in any context, let alone the entire spectrum, because that would imply that people can get along and have a rational conversation and look at things unbiasedly and objectively. And that's just not something that I feel our society will condone. So in going into this episode, please hear me say, I understand if there are parts of this episode that are upsetting, we will have a disclaimer for the actual content. But I really just ask that you come into this episode with an open mind, especially if you're new to our show. This episode is going to be really beautiful and really powerful, but it's also going to be pretty intense. So I'm just throwing that out there. Today, we will be discussing bad apple officers of the law, and we will also be discussing pretty in-depthly qualified immunity and systemic racism within our country. I am here for this episode, and I'm super excited to get into it and learn everything you have to teach me. Thank you. I'm super excited also. Other thing, like small side thing for anybody who doesn't know, this is like an absolute passion of mine. You can go back to any episode within our race series and hear us talk about my feelings about racism. We say fuck racists in about every single episode we can. We have a huge thing against Christopher Columbus. So again, if you're new here, I'm just catching you up. I'm just getting you up to speed so you know what we're about. That's really our position here. We want everybody to be exactly who they are, but we don't condone racists. We don't condone pedophilia and we don't condone any sort of behavior that is just outright bad. Like we talk about taboo culture here, but that doesn't mean that we condone all activity that is considered quote unquote taboo. Again, see another episode if this is your first time. But I would like to get into our disclaimer for this episode if you believe that we are ready to do that, Miss Allie. Yep, all good here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please leave your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times and remain seated. Enjoy the ride. Our disclaimer today is, first and foremost, this episode will contain a content warning as there are concepts, situations, and imagery discussed that may be triggering to some listeners. Today we will be discussing topics that will include violence, police brutality, and systemic racism. We recognize that although there are thousands of great officers all over this country, this profession has absolutely no room for anything less than great, and the reality of bad apple cops directly impacts the integrity of not only police officers collectively, 
collectively, but the institution of justice as a whole. We are of the position that we appreciate and respect officers who follow the laws they enforce themselves. However, we must bring this conversation to light due to all of the officers who don't. 100%. So I wanted to really start with where it all began. Uh, I wanted to talk about specifically how the United States got its police force. And this is according to time.com. And ironically, the title is called How the United States Got Its Police Force. I, I am an idiot. It's fine. <laughs> no, that's just serendipitous. <laughs> So a lot of people have convinced themselves that a police institution goes as far back as our nation's history, and that's just simply not true at all. According to this article, and quote, policing in colonial America had been very informal based on a for-profit, privately funded system that employed people part-time. Towns also commonly relied on a quote-unquote night watch in which volunteers signed up for certain days and times mostly to look out for fellow colonists engaging in prostitution or gambling. So in 1636, Boston started a police force. New York followed in 1658, and Philadelphia created one in 1700. But the system wasn't very efficient because the watchmen often slept and drank while they were on duty. And they were people who were put on duty as a form of punishment. So shout out to the birthplace of bad cops. Like, holy fucking shit. You are literally hiring people to do this job who are in trouble. And that's why you're having them do this job. Like, that's insane. Yeah. Also, their drinking and doling out punishment seems like a great combination. Right? Just absolutely zero room for error there. Completely. The article continues to say, quote, Night watch officers were supervised by constables, but that wasn't exactly a highly sought out job either. Early policemen, quote, didn't wear badges because these guys had bad reputations to begin with. They didn't want to be identified as people other people didn't like. When localities tried compulsory service, people found their way out. Quote, if you were rich enough to pay someone to do it for you, ironically, a criminal or a community thug, you could totally do that. So if you were assigned a night watch duty and you were like, hey, scary dude on the corner who clearly has criminal activity under his belt, you want to play policeman tonight? And if he was like, you got 50 bucks and dude was like, yeah, guess what? That's your cop for the evening. Great choices. I think so also. As the community expanded through different region regions, wow, what the fuck, am I fancy? Region. <laughs> As the country expanded through different regions, they took this idea and made use of different policing systems. Quote, in cities, increasing urbanization rendered the night watch system completely useless as communities got too big too quickly. The first publicly funded organized police force with officers on duty was created in Boston in 1838. That's over a hundred years later. Holy fuck. Yeah, that's crazy. This was primarily to protect the ports and any high value imported goods. So specifically, policing was invented just to traffic commerce. It wasn't for any other purpose. Okay. So this is where shit's about to get real. And I have to say that my special guest notebook even says, deep breath, Celeste. This is where shit gets real. So let's all take a deep breath together because I feel like that'd be good for us. Okay. 
In the South, however, the economics that drove the creation of the police forces were centered not on the protection of shipping interests, but on the preservation of the slavery system. Some primary policing institutions were the slave patrols tasked with chasing down runaways and preventing slave revolts. The first formal slave patrol had been created in the Carolina colonies in 1704. During the Civil War, the military became the primary source of law enforcement in the South. During the Reconstruction, many local sheriffs functioned in a way synonymous with the earlier slave patrols enforcing segregation and disenfranchisement of freed slaves. Quote, in general, throughout the 19th century and beyond, the definition of public order that which the police were in charge with maintaining depended on whom was asked. For example, businessmen in the late 19th century had both connections to politicians and an image of the kind of people most likely to go on strike and disrupt their workforce. So it's no coincidence that by the late 1880s, all major cities in the U.S. had police forces. Fears of labor, union organizers, and of large waves of Catholic, Irish, Italian, German, and Eastern European immigrants who looked and acted differently from the people who had dominated cities before drove the call for the preservation of law and order, or at least the version of it promoted by dominant interests. For example, people drank at taverns rather than at home were seen as quote-unquote dangerous people by others. Other factors, such as how living in a smaller home made drinking in a tavern more appealing. The irony of this logic is that businessmen who maintained this belief were often the ones who profited off of the commercial sale of alcohol in public spaces. So the people who were out drinking and who were quote-unquote dangerous, who were literally the reason that this theory of policing was necessary in these communities, were the same exact people who were profiting off of alcohol sales at the time. So if they're wealthy, the whole point was, the whole point that was made and the concern even at the very beginning has always been you can buy protection and you can pay off trouble. Shout out to that sort of corruption still being here today. Here, here. At the same time, the late 19th century was the era of political machines, so police captains and sergeants for each precinct were often picked by the local political party ward leader, who often owned the taverns or ran street gangs that then intimidated voters. They then were able to use the police to harass opponents of that of a particular political party or provide payoffs for officers to turn a blind eye to allow illegal drinking, gambling, and prostitution. This situation was exacerbated during Prohibition, leading President Hoover to appoint the Wickersham Commission in 1929 to investigate the ineffectiveness of law enforcement nationwide to make police independent from political party ward leaders. The map of police precincts was changed so that they would not correspond with political wards. The drive to professionalize the police force followed, which means that the concept of a career cop that we would recognize today is less than a century old. Whoa. That's crazy. I thought so too. Like, seriously. We're going to get into all of it. I'm going to stop. But just holy fuck. In the concept of our country and in time, that is a speck of time. 
Farther campaigns for police professionalism were promoted as the 20th century progressed, but crime historian Samuel Walkers, who wrote The Police in America, an introduction argues that the move toward professionalism wasn't all good. That's just not a very catchy title. Okay. (laughs) I got stuck on it because it wasn't, I just, okay, ignore me. That's fine. That movement, he argues, promoted the creation of police departments that were, quote, inward looking and, quote, isolated from the public and crime control tactics that ended up exacerbating tensions between the police and the communities that they watched over. And so, more than half a century after Kennedy's 1963 proclamation, the improvement and the modernization of America's surprisingly young police force continues to this day. That's crazy. I didn't realize how young everything was. I agree completely. So do you want to hear a little bit more about how young things are in this perspective? Yeah. Fantastic. Let's get into that. My next section is called, How Does Someone Become a Police Officer? Because I really wanted to know. I really want to understand the training, the expectation, what this looks like. How are people prepared to become police officers? And I have some background information on this, but I truly wanted to be able to speak to it very articulately and very accurately to properly portray this picture because honestly, it's so fucking surprising and I really think it's important that we understand this and honestly ask some fucking questions. Agreed. So this information came from learnhowtobe.com. Shout out to learnhowtobe.com. We used it in our driver episode and I actually just really like this website. So again, if anybody's looking for career advice, you know what? Learnhowtobe.com is a pretty legit resource. No, they are not sponsoring us. But they could be. You certainly are welcome to. The first step is obtain a high school diploma or GED. Pretty basic. The next step says this is the <laughs> This is the first red flag for me. I swear to fucking god. Meet other minimum requirements is literally all it said. And then my brain said, "What?" So then I had to look into that more. <laughs> to know what it meant. And it said, most applicants will need to be a U.S. citizen, have a valid driver's license, and be at least 18 or 21 years of age, depending on department policy. Applicants will also need a clean criminal record, although some police departments may allow those with criminal records as long as the offenses were quote-unquote very minor. Felonies will disqualify someone from this profession. And then I literally sit here and I understand that people make stupid-ass decisions when they're kids and like, I don't know, I imagine like egging someone's house as very minor. Like, if you got caught doing that shit and that's a ticket and that's on your record, like, okay, fine. Like, you could still be a police officer and I'm not being disrespectful of that. But I know police officers with DUI like they're still police officers they got their DUIs before they became a police officer how is that how is that fair how does that make sense I guess my take on it is people can change I hear you so let's acknowledge though for a second 18 to 21 years old that is still so young. And I'm not saying that it's too young to start an education. I'm not saying it's too young to know what you want to be when you grow up. But let me finish helping you understand what this education looks like so that you can truly weigh what the age of these students who then very fucking shortly after turn into police officers really means. Yeah, because at that age, you're still learning how to deal with your own emotions. Ding, ding, ding. 
So the next step says obtain a bachelor's degree, but it's optional. But then it went on to say a bachelor's degree is usually needed for a more advanced law enforcement position, especially those at a federal level, such as with the FBI or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Even if it's not required, police departments are increasing to begin to look favorably on applicants with college degrees. Here's my question, and this has always been my question, and I'm not knocking, I'm not judging, I just need to understand. How can someone who has not studied the law enforce the law how does that work yeah i don't have an answer for you there thank you thank you i'm gonna continue but please everybody know that that is a very hot button item for me for myself personally from my own personal experiences as someone who will be an attorney someday as someone who has more than 17 brain cells i just would like everybody to understand that that is a very real question that i have and i have not been able to find an answer for that in any of my research so big question there The next step is pass law enforcement entrance exam. Before being admitted into a police academy, applicants must achieve a passing score on an entrance exam. The exact entrance exam will depend on the police academy and its jurisdiction. Excuse me. How is that fucking, how does that make sense? That means that every jurisdiction and every single department is teaching their deputies differently. How does that make sense? It doesn't. It's completely idiotic. Here is why that is completely idiotic, Allie. Let's just stay there for one second. Things from a legal perspective, from the way that law enforcement officers have to look at situations is so black and white. And I mean that in a very conceptualized manner, okay? We're not to racism yet. We're going to get there. But the law itself is either right or wrong. That is how the law is supposed to work. And we don't really live in a society where it works that way anymore. According to this research, I would argue we never really have. But we're now to this point where as a society, we pretend like that's how it works for the greater good. That's the song and dance that they sell us. But what I really struggle with is if the law is that black and white, How are you not teaching them exactly the same in every single fucking jurisdiction that you have in this fucking country? Yeah, the justice system is completely fucked. Completely. That's an entirely different episode, but completely fucked with a capital F. The next step is to graduate from the police academy. The police academy is where applicants receive the most important training that will allow them to serve as police officers. Training, are you ready? I'm ready. Can last six months months what i love your face right now i love your face always but i'm pissed so here's here's what i did you guys this is i'm so fucking mad about this i'm so fucking mind blown you're literally putting 18 year olds and 21 year olds in this fucking class for six months and let's talk about what they cover in six months shall we the curriculum covers topics such as search and seizure criminal statutes traffic laws firearm training driver training, and physical conditioning. Allie, my darling, you know that sometimes I get a little emotional. And sometimes when I'm emotional, I don't think very logically. Can you please logically analyze those categories of study that I just said to you and tell me where 
in those studies, a police officer would be able to understand from an educated perspective how to handle someone who's experiencing domestic abuse or somebody who has a mental illness. Where in those trainings does it teach you how to actually interact with people in distress? Did you hear anything that I missed? Not only does it not cover that portion of it, it also doesn't take into account that six months isn't enough time to cover any of what it's intended to cover. My girl, thank you for the fucking segue, because I am such a psycho, I took it to this level, and this is what we're going to talk about right fucking now. That is six months to do six steps. And we're going to we're going to talk about this. We're really going to outline this. The first is learn how to search and seizure. My questions would be, does this include how to assess people in distress, people with mental or cognitive issues, how to deal with someone who is tripping balls? Like that is a completely different experience that has nothing to do with searching or seizuring. How do you handle a raged out wife beating psycho? Or how do you handle the wife in that situation? I just, let's throw that in search and seizures because it's literally the only fucking category any of those questions could fall under. The next is criminal statutes. This one hits home for me as a future attorney and as someone who recognizes there's so much wrong with our judicial system and I recognize part of it is here. I recognize part of it is on that front line. So really, lawyers on average have seven years of full-time education after high school. That's four years of undergraduate study followed by another three years of law school. Holler to the next seven years of my fucking life. Like, girl, I see you. I'm coming for you. But how can police officers, let's go back to my question before, how can police officers enforce laws that they spent six months studying? How is that even fair to a police officer? You literally read the book Maybe. And now you have to enforce these laws? That's just crazy. They're grossly undereducated in terms of the exact justices that they represent. And I don't understand how nobody questions that. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's a disservice to not only the community, but to the officers themselves. Exactly. And again, there are thousands of laws and statutes to recognize, and you've got six months to figure them out? Like, that's insane. That's that. There's no, absolutely no job ever in the history of life that prepares you so poorly for something that is so in your fucking face like being a police officer. The next stage is traffic laws. Again, so many laws to recognize, so many things to look at specifically, like I'm not even going to get into it. Traffic laws, another bullet. The next is firearms training. So this is how to be accurate and safe. This is not a mental or emotional evaluation of if this person should have a firearm at all. And that's not fair either. That's not fair to the good cops who are sane and stable and who are in this for the right reasons compared to the bad cops who are putting on a good face for six months because that's all they've got to fucking do. That's not fair. Agreed 100%. The next is driver training. How do you multitask a vehicle in a high adrenaline situation, a walkie, a laptop, a moving GPS that you are watching because you are still navigating the world around you in the pursuit of public well-being? How do you teach someone that? How do you successfully learn and consistently juggle all of those things? Like that just, mm. And to teach someone how to do that, again, 
in six months is absolutely mind-blowing. Yep, agreed. Driver training for teenagers doesn't even last six months. It's longer than that. The last one is physical training. So how do you protect yourself? How do you physically protect others? How do you get to your physical peak to be the human machines that society has painted you to be? Get fit, get fast, and learn how to fight. So you literally have six months to study and become a subject matter expert in six core aspects that this education expectation has presented within these academics. That means that you have one month to be the top student of all of these things, experts of all of these topics. And that simply is not fair to, like you said, Allie, the public or the officers. It's not fair And as a society, that is grossly irresponsible of us to be okay with. Yeah, it's absolutely ludicrous to think that that's sufficient in that role. Agreed. So that was just the education. Let's go back to how this continues, how how you continue to work toward becoming a police officer. So the next step would be to work toward a promotion. Depending on the department, moving up in the ranks depends on the level of experience, performance reviews, scoring well on written promotion exams, and obtaining additional skills and training. Pay increases with a promotion, but so does the level of responsibility and potential bureaucracy. So I think that this is a really important aspect for me to share, and I want to do that right now because... I just, I really think that this is important for you guys as listeners to understand where my heart is in this conversation and why this aspect is so important to me and also why this isn't me bashing police officers specifically. Currently, this is me talking about the concept of how we educate people to become police officers and then the expectations of those people within these roles. So if it's okay with you, Allie Darling, I would like to tell a brief story. Yep. So I've been on a ride along and I was on the graveyard shift in our incredibly small community. Like I'm recognizing that I'm not being dishonest about that. Allie can attest. We have a small ass community. I have the utmost respect for police officers in their experiences out in the world. I understand and deeply value that the police are literally the human shield that protects average people like you and I from the most horrific evils the imagination can create. These humans are exposed every day to extreme velocity, adrenaline, split second decisions, and trauma related to every single sense that we have as humans. Imagine getting used to the smell of death. Imagine being forced to look at the aftermath of unadulterated violence all the time, every day, wash, rinse, repeat. Like that's truly what police officers experience. That's a terrible fucking job. And they do deserve respect. Police officers do deserve respect for doing this job because if they didn't do it, those horrors would be unleashed on us and our communities. And is that something that we want? No. It's not. But how is it psychologically fair that society can ask a human being to prepare for that to be your life with six months of education to back you? Like, that's legitimately my question. This isn't a discredit to police officers. This is entirely the fault of the institution that sets the precedent of education for law enforcement officers. So, dear 23-year-old young men who have never faced any real danger ever, here's a weapon and a car and 
and you know how to use both. So with 32 seconds of training, good luck out there. Make a difference. Remember, we're the good guys. That is really what is happening when people become police officers. And maybe not in every instance, but you guys, the majority of them, this is the experience. And that, again, you're dealing with people who are just emotionally not mature enough to be making the decisions that police officers have to make for their entire lives. It's like telling a doctor to go perform brain surgery after playing operation for three hours. That's exactly correct. That was a fantastic analogy. Thank you, Allie. And that's simply fucking wrong. Like, let's acknowledge that. Let's talk about that. It's not fair to any man or woman who wears a badge. And for that reason, police officers as human beings have my utmost respect. I am not here screaming fuck 12. I want to be super clear about that. Everybody hear me say that. I am not here screaming fuck 12. That is not my thing. I am out here screaming protect and serve doesn't include killing people in their homes. And if you do that, there are consequences. That's what I believe. Allie, is that what you also believe? Yep. I support the people, not what it currently is, if that makes sense. I agree completely. No, it absolutely does. And I think I agree. Uh, That's exactly where I'm at. So with that history and with the understanding of what it takes to become a police officer, I would like to move forward with the rest of our episode as it relates to bad apple officers of the law, the systemic perspective, and the racial issues that are built into this system today. And And just a couple other things, but in order to move forward, I would really like to go get our special guest because she is ready to join us. Bling, 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 bling. (laughs) Well, hello there, special guest. Hi, beautiful face. Oh, hi. Hey everyone out in listener land, we have the most profound pleasure of introducing Mrs. Mrs. Miss. I really need to ask these sort of things beforehand. (laughs) I'm actually a Mrs., so I would take Mrs. Mrs. Catherine Sheffield of the podcast A Few Bad Apples. If you're not already listening, go do so directly after this episode. Immediately. Immediately. You will get a small taste of her excellence in this episode, but I highly recommend everything she's ever created. So get on that. Well, thank you. I also failed to say doctor, so shame on me. Uh, yeah. Listen, Thank you. I'm a woman of many hats, so I'll take Mrs. or (laughs) Doctor, whatever you want to call me. (laughs) So we would love if you could give our listeners a little blurb on yourself, who you are, what you run, what your podcast is about, and why we have you on today. Sure. You can skip the last one. Don't worry about why we have you on today, because we will talk about that. Just kidding. You can skip the last one. We're going to talk about it. Okay. Um, well, a little about myself. I have my doctoral degree in educational leadership. I am a high school English teacher, and now I am a podcaster thanks to COVID-19 and uh, my exploratory ways. So I was really interested in this area of police crimes because of all the things we see on the news every day. And I was just thinking, I have an idea. And I personally thought, 
no one was going to ever listen to it, but then it just started blowing up and I'm getting so much positive feedback and reception from people. So yeah, my podcast really hopefully is aiming to inspire change. I absolutely love that. I have been hooked on your podcast since I found it which huge shout out to Allie was like, hey, check out this podcast. This is so you. That's awesome. You're welcome. <laughs> and sure enough, it is. But seriously, you do such incredible work. You are so detailed and so thorough, but at the same time, like so sensitive. And it's just such an experience to listen to your episodes and, and to really like understand the facts. But you do such an amazing job of keeping a very human touch to it, which I really appreciate because I feel like a lot of true crime podcasts don't necessarily keep that humanistic approach. And especially in crimes where you're talking about the assailant being a police officer, you got to just keep in mind like that crime had a little extra salt on it because it's coming from someone who was supposed to protect you by the oath they made to society. Like that's just hard. Right. Yeah, I do definitely try. And I mean, it is sometimes hard not to sympathize with them. But I mean, not not for the crime that they commit, but as a person watching them do this and taking on this role and then having such a contradictory reaction, you just like, wow, like what happened but I really intentionally do try to keep the story going with the victim at the core because a lot of times it just gets buried under all the new news that happens every day we have you know a new instance every day unfortunately and um, I, I tried to like give a really good variety from the past and I mean, more recent and things that maybe no one even heard of in the first place because the media just shied away from it. So thank you for noticing that because that was my intention to be very, you know, compassionate towards all of it and very neutral. I try to be very neutral. And I really feel like you do such an amazing job of that. Yeah. And shout out to you really finding all these different stories that no one is giving a voice to. I constantly call out your Katrina episodes when I'm recommending specific episodes to people because I was really like, I've never heard of this. Nobody's been talking about this. And this was a disaster that occurred. And then this happened on top of it. It's just insane to me. So yeah, you're truly giving a voice to people that really don't have it. Thank you. And I just want to also add, like, I'm obsessed with your Brianna Taylor episode. I love all of your episodes. I've listened to so many of them. It's not even funny. But the Brianna Taylor episode just hit me so hard because you did such an amazing job of incorporating all aspects of what happened and truly bringing this picture together. Your information about no-knock warrants was honestly like eye-opening to me. And I just, as someone who's very active as an activist and somebody who's very passionate about this topic like the attention to detail that you bring is just so incredible and honestly that episode had me in tears like four different times I'm not even joking I just and I knew what happened I know this story but you just bring such a different approach to it and like Allie said a voice for the victims like you wouldn't even imagine so I personally thank you for your work I'm I'm obsessed with it and I'm so grateful that it's out there Oh, thank you guys so much. Yeah, with that story, uh, it was hard. It was really hard. But something that you guys might see, hopefully, is a little more solution-based things coming my way, like the episode that I just dropped with that uh, interview that I just released today. You know, hopefully you'll see some solution-based thing and a partnership with the Criminal Justice Training Center. So hopefully we'll see things that other people can get involved in and push for some good change that is much needed and past due. 
That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Incredible. Oh my God. Hats off to you. I'm so honored to have you on the show, like in general, but you (laughs) saying that brought it to like a whole different level and I just love you so fucking much. It's not even funny. Well, I love you guys. (laughs) Okay. So I know when we had been speaking before about our episode, this one, you had made a comment that you weren't sure what qualified immunity was, which is fantastic. And I'm using that as a segue on purpose because the next portion of the research that I really want to get into is qualified immunity. For anybody who doesn't know what qualified immunity is, we're going to talk about it. So please know that we don't, we're not judging. I don't think you're stupid. I don't think anything other than I think this is information that the public should be aware of. You're going to understand why in about, I don't know, I don't time myself when I talk, but minutes. Just minutes. So stay tuned. Here we go. I time you when you talk. I know you do because you're an asshole. Yep. So truly, this is going to be us talking about the consequences or the lack thereof. And this came from lawfareblog.com. So the definition of qualified immunity. Let's start there. In the United States, qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials performing discretionary functions immunity from civil suits unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated, quote unquote, clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. That literally does not make sense. For example, a law that is not clearly established that falls under qualified immunity is rape. You can be raped while you're detained by a police officer, for example. And we're going to talk about that, so stay tuned. It's not quite exactly what it sounds like, but at the same time, it is exactly what it fucking sounds like. Wow. My telepathy told me that was going to be your example. It's a very fucking obvious example and it's really hard to fucking argue. Mm -hmm. Let's take a deeper look at this because I think this is fascinating and super fucking disturbing. Qualified immunity is a judicially created doctrine that shields government officials from being held personally liable for constitutional violations like the right to be free from excessive police force for money damages under federal law so long as the official did not violate quote-unquote clearly established law. Please don't worry, dear everyone, we will talk about what quote-unquote clearly established law means in just a second because my note says (laughs) I'm such an idiot. Oh, this is amazing. My note says I'm not educated enough to be able to explain what quote-unquote clearly established law means in layman's terms because there's only like super legal jargon around the definition. The only reason I figured this out is because I dove deeper into this than I probably ever should have for my sanity and I figured out what clearly established law means. So we are going to talk about it. Qualified immunity was put in place as an aid. The statute originally passed to assist the government in combating the KKK and their violence in the South after the Civil War. Shout out to all the cops from the South who ended up making the KKK. Y'all are on my list. And also, shout out to our white privilege episode. If you are unfamiliar with our white privilege episode and how I truly feel about the KKK, go check it out. When government officials are sued, qualified immunity functions as an affirmative defense that they can raise, barring damages, even if they have committed unlawful acts. Qualified immunity, however, is not a defense to claim for injunctive relief. This concept has existed and evolved throughout the time since 1871. Let me just say this 
again. This concept of protecting officials from the public they serve has been in place since 1871. Shocker. According to our research before, the real police, the real police that we know today weren't even formed until like 1870 fucking six or some shit. I don't even remember. I'm just so worked up about this because this is insane to me. No, honestly, when you put it out there like that, it's completely baffling. Like, wow, this is our foundation. And that's why your podcast embodies like what we need to be talking about. Real. So this actually gets like so much more fucked up than everything I just said. And let's talk about why. Because that evolution of this concept of qualified immunity is so, so, so important for this concept. So truly, qualified immunity started, like we said, in 1871. But since then, there have been three fractures to this concept that have made it nearly impossible to beat the concept of qualified immunity. So let's talk about those fractures, shall we? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yep. So that first fracture is, quote, in order to show the law was, quote unquote, clearly established, the court has generally required plaintiffs to point to an already existing judicial decision with substantially similar facts. Jesus Christ. Yep. I'm already annoyed. Yep. I'm so annoyed right now. Yep. We're going to talk about it. We're going to just wait. I'm so excited. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Legal shit gets me off, so this is so fun for me. A quote from Julian Sanchez on Twitter says, and this was like the best quote I could find. I swear to fucking God, I was here for it. This is Julian Sanchez, my hero. Thank you for saying this. The first person to litigate a specific harm is out of luck since the first time around, there wasn't enough clearly established issue. Yep. This doesn't just apply to cops. Like, I want to be very clear about that. There are lots of judges who offer this to people, right, wrong, or indifferent. It doesn't matter. But right now, we're talking about police officers. So I personally feel like this should not be a thing. Fool me once with a cop is all you get. Like, that's my position. Right. I agree. It's like when employers are looking for somebody who has six years of experience in a level entry job. Like, that's not how it's supposed to work. That's not how it should work. Agreed. But this gets even better. So I just want to do like a quick poll. How are we feeling about Fractured One? Like on a, on a level of angry. Are we like annoyed? Are we furious? Like where are we on that? Well, for me personally, I get angry because how are you going to compare it to anything else? Like this particular circumstance, if it even gets entertained by anyone looking at it in the courts, how, how are we going to compare it to anything else? That's an excellent point. I'm just annoyed. Okay. I'm just not shocked, so I'm annoyed. Okay. And giving it all the middle fingers. That's fair. That's fair. I just, I appreciate that we can have this spectrum. Everybody knows how I feel about it, so I really want to just take like a temperature gauge, and I think that's fair. Let's move on to Fracture 2. In 2009, the Supreme Court altered the way in which courts apply the doctrine in a manner that created a significant obstacle for civil rights plaintiffs. So for anybody who doesn't know what a plaintiff represents, this is the person Person who brings a case against another in court of law. So if you're going to sue someone, if you choose to be the person who sues someone else, you're the plaintiff. Like that's how that works. So in these cases, the plaintiff were people suing the cops or the city. Like let's keep that in mind specifically as we talk about this. So what happened? In 2001, the high court held a case that when addressing qualified immunity defense, courts must first determine whether there was a violation of constitutional right and 
then move on to analyze whether the law was clearly established. However, fast forward to 2009, the justices reversed course, allowing the courts to grant qualified immunity based only on the clearly established prong and without ever determining if there was a constitutional violation. Quote, as Judge Don Willett of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit explained in a recent opinion article, this like opinion article is what it was called on the website in the article I'm referencing. I don't actually know what article this was from, but I'm not plagiarizing. Quote, this creates a catch-22 for civil plaintiffs because courts often take what Willett calls quote, the simpler route of resolving a case. A case based on the quote-unquote clearly established inquiry rather than engaging in the quote, naughty constitutional inquiry of whether the officials violated the constitution. So just hold on one second. I know I used a lot of really legal words. They will make sense in a moment. The 2009 case has resulted in less precedent finding constitutional violations. In turn, will it put it, quote, no precedent equals no clearly established law equals no liability. According to a recent study done by Rutgers, plaintiffs in excessive force cases against police have a harder time getting past qualified immunity since 2009. These cases are in reference to Saucier versus Katz in 2001 and Pierce versus Callahan in 2009. I want to put fracture two in layman's terms for us and for everybody else because this was like a braingasm moment for me and I was like holy fuck fracture two was like detrimental and we really need to recognize it as that so this is me putting into the layman's terms and then we're going to talk about it so really fracture two says if you have a clean record because of the rule that was established in fracture number one you did not violate a clearly established law then there is no fracture number one to consider at all which means that they're completely off the hook period. They made a loophole for good cops who were put in situations to make hard choices, and then they cemented the loophole in place so that the judicial system itself had less work to do and more police resources available. So they were putting these cops who had faced qualified immunity lawsuits back on the street because they let them off. So really, we're building like a nice little get out of jail free card right now, and we're only on fracture two. So Ladies, where do you stand now? What are your thoughts, feelings, comments, questions, anything? So this fracture two is the one where it's the civil rights, right? Was was anyone's civil rights violated? Is that yes, correct? Yes, ma'am. That is correct. Okay. I'm familiar with this because of my case that I did on Phil Holland. His attorneys were actually able to file a section 1983, which falls under this whole immunity thing from what I'm learning now. But they were able to file a civil rights lawsuit because they did determine that he, they did violate his civil rights. The police officer shot at him while he was delivering food. He did nothing else. He was literally a delivery man and they thought he was someone else and they just shot him. And, you know, so they did violate his civil rights and they were able to finally get this thing going, which I believe is a very rare type of case. So, yeah, it, it was be and, and the case was very cut and dry. There was nothing really like to figure out. Those officers acted quite impulsively, if you ask me, and they were able to take it forward and he did win that case. So I love that happy ending. And here's the crazy thing too, is civil and constitutional rights are somewhat up for interpretation of whoever is reading them truly. Completely. So somebody could have looked at that and been like, mm, 
No, so obviously that's not correct, and I'm super glad that the outcome for him is what it is. That doesn't give me any faith in our justice system because it happens far too little that that's the case, but I'm glad that at least it happened correctly for somebody. Right. Agreed to that. Yeah, and I think the difference, the difference I think in his case was that his attorneys put both lawsuits in a state level and also the federal. So that's also very atypical and doesn't really happen very often. So, but they were pressing because they're like, look, the situation is not kosher like that should never have happened and and that's why they were able to make such a monumental move with that i really appreciate you sharing that not only in your relation to understanding what we're talking about but also that qualified immunity does have a plus side to it that gives hope to me personally because especially as we get into fracture three and we get into some of the concepts and how I explain again my example of rape from before like fuck I just don't feel like there's ever a happy situation so you sharing that with us Kat is like a really big deal for me in understanding this and it actually makes me like a little less jaded toward the concept which is so unbelievably ridiculous for me to say because I hate this concept (laughs) but I appreciate you sharing it time out before we move on to fracture three where are we on the temperature scale at this point well it's frustrating (laughs) (laughs) okay I don't even know if there's a temperature for that Allie girl I'm out of middle fingers I'm out of middle fingers how many do you have though can you count listen I know how many hands I have it's my feet I have problems (laughs) with what I love you. I love you so much. All right. So fracture three, which this is the one that turns my blood into lava. Fracture three can only be referenced as quote unquote reasonable officers. And I would like us to start there. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. I was going to say there was a deep breath. I'm scared. Yeah. This one's fucked. This one's so fucked. I'm just curious. What defines reasonable? (laughs) Oh, baby girl. We are going to talk about that. Just you wait. That's why I took a deep breath because what defines reasonable is such a good fucking question. Oh, I love that question. So this is truly where this just gets so disgusting and to such a level of obviousness that I'm just furious that people don't know these things or know that they have rights and, and truly know their rights. So just starting on that point. In a 1986 decision, the high court famously wrote, likely with all good intention, okay? I recognize that. I am not saying that the Supreme Court wrote this with the intention of fucking over the public. However, intention and perception are two very different fucking things. They wrote that qualified immunity protects, quote, all but the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. So in 1986, let's really talk about 1986, okay? I wasn't alive personally, but that wasn't that long ago, right? And crime by 1986 had already very much evolved, okay? Like crime that we know and we recognize. So really keep that in mind that the Supreme Court of our country said that qualified immunity protects all but the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. Harvard law professor and ACLU lawyer Scott Michaelman notes in a recent article, 
quote, the Supreme Court's construct of a reasonable officer has shifted since Harlow in 1986. That's the case that we're talking about. To grant government officials greater defense. Since the Supreme Court has stated that a defendant's, aka the police, conduct is to be judged off of the basis of any quote-unquote reasonable officer or quote-unquote every reasonable official, thus implying that in order for a plaintiff to overcome qualified immunity, the right violated must be so clear that it's a violation in the plaintiff's case would have been obvious not just to the average quote-unquote reasonable officer, but also to the least informed and least reasonable officer. So fracture three, ladies and gentlemen, is truly why our society cannot afford to let bad apple officers of the law be in law enforcement. Because one bad apple officer is all it takes to rot all of the good officers in this system. Because the court is basing their decision of qualified immunity off of reasonable officers. And if you're a shitty officer, guess what? You are where the bar is set. That's it. That's how this works. That is qualified immunity. That's some shit. <laughs> Here's the thing that blows my mind with it. You basically just have to be, or rather just have to say that you're unaware and you don't know and that you were acting in best interest. You just have to play the game. I mean, that's true in so many things, but still. That's exactly correct. But in the game that is law and order and people's lives and our country's safety and well-being, it can't afford to be a game. It can't. And for officers who say they don't know better when they really do, you're fucking over everyone else who wears a fucking badge. And that is disgusting to me on so many levels. And the fact that our system has built itself to protect those officers in the effort to protect good officers really just is so unsettling to me. And I don't think it's fair. I don't. I think that police officers should be tried exactly the same way as everyone else for any infraction, any situation that they face on duty or off duty. I really do. Right. Yep, I agree. So I really wanted to talk about the qualified immunity piece before we get into the rest of this, because I really think that that is super important. And we are going to talk about qualified immunity again. We have some facts and statistics to share later, but I thought that that was an important foundational piece before we move forward. The next thing that I want to bring up and I want to talk about is actually some history with policing and police brutality, because truly right now I want to talk about bad cops and I want to talk about bad cops that exist exist in our system. So Kat, you and I had talked previous to this episode about a case that I really, really would like to bring into this episode because it means a lot to me personally. Okay. And by the way, I don't know if you knew, there were new revelations on this story as current as 2018. So I'll chime in. So from my perspective, the reason this story is important is because I truly feel as though this story demonstrates how aggressive brutality can be. It, it truly demonstrates, in my opinion, how historical brutality is in our country. And I personally asked Kat to help bring this story into this episode for us because I recognize that there are not enough people in our world who know this story. And I just think that that's 
unacceptable. I feel like everyone should know this story. And there are so many victims that we could have chosen. This was incredibly difficult for us. Like there's another section of this episode where we will talk about some victims, but specifically this case just hits my core. So I think that this is really important. And Kat, if you have what you need, I would love for us to get into the piece that you're going to present for this episode. Well, in the time that this story occurred, it was it happened in the 50s and it was a time where the country was still in that limbo of division by color and you know people were labeling everything and there was that stigma to be black or any other race at that time and you know there were the whites and that was the climate in the country and unfortunately if a crime was committed no one would feel comfortable enough to call the police if they were black because the police officers were going to be white and I mean they probably would not be on their side so it was quite a dilemma for folks in that time. And let's go back to the beginning part of our episode where we talk about how policing in the south really started and what that started as. Right exactly and I found a good quote um, which was quite shocking actually it was um, from the Economic Policy Institute and it says quote from 1877 to 1950 nearly 4,000 individuals were victims of lynchings some have speculated that as many as 75% of historical lynchings were perpetrated with the direct or indirect assistance of law enforcement personnel end quote so there's that there's that if the community know that the police are partaking in this how could they call anyone if there was a legit emergency or if a crime was Uh committed against them and most of the time let's just say again the crime was committed by the police i'm just over here silent because i'm just too disgusted by it i really don't have words guys i'm sorry (laughs) i'm useless right now i'm useless she says and all the people that came out to watch these lynchings never faced any repercussions either. And so there was also that maybe understanding with white people at the time that, hey, we're good. There, nothing's going to happen to us. And unfortunately, many black people suffered at the hands of the police at that time. And, and there were bystanders that stood by and watched with no remorse, no inclination to help. Because it was so normal. And I I just, I really struggle with, I think it's really interesting that you say that because fast forward to today where watching brutality is still very normal, quote unquote. And I just think about the number of videos that have been recorded on a phone. And I understand that recording it is so important for evidence purposes. But at the same time, I just really struggle in being someone who watches those recordings and imagining standing there holding my phone. I struggle doing that like in watching the George Floyd video I was screaming praying that the woman holding the phone recording would hear me and just charge Derek Chauvin like like that's what I just couldn't stand there I don't understand that right and I mean you can even go back as far as Rodney King I mean the man was just standing outside his house like it happens all the time and I did a case with Walter Scott where a guy was just standing there recording I mean he was upset But he probably figured, you know, I'm not going to deal with this guy with a gun. And he watched this man get murdered. But in this case, though, these people are reporting to help. In those times, they were watching to participate in the fun, I guess. 
which is a very important call out and I really appreciate that you said that. I would argue that there are still people who watch for quote unquote fun, but I think that it's just interesting that the evolution of watching this has really taken this shape. And I I recognize like and again, yes, record because that's the only that's the only defense that you or the victim have in that moment, but at the same time like Mm. I would step in front of an officer if it meant protecting someone from the the horrors that experience in a racial climate with the police. Yeah, not many people would. So seriously, kudos to you for being that person because we're going to be real here. I don't know, Ellie, what do you think? Uh, not many people would. Thank you. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And honestly, I'm one of the people that I'd have to judge the situation because we're taught to respect and fear the police and that's instilled in me so i can't say i can't say it for sure be that person i totally appreciate that and i totally recognize that and we are going to talk about that i love that you did that but before we get to that i would really like to talk about emmett till because he deserves us to share his story. I will say to anyone listening and who has ever checked out my podcast, I am doing my very first exclusive episode on Emmett Till uh, because his story is so important. And even though it was historical, it's still really relevant today. A lot of full circle type of moments, I guess you could say, that you can totally see happening today. Not in the same context, but definitely relevant to what we're seeing on on our TVs uh, quite frequently. Agreed. I'm ready and here for it. So Emmett Till was living up in Chicago and he and his family were ready to, you know, take a trip down south, visit some family. And when he got there, he was hanging out with all his cousins and he was only like 14 years old. So he and his cousins were hanging out. They walked down to a corner store and they were just messing around. And he kind of said, hey, I dated a white woman or white girl before. And his cousins were like, what? That's unreal. Especially Especially with the climate, that would totally be crazy. Oh my God. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't believe you. And he was like, well, you dare me to go in the store and, you know, talk to this white lady that's working there? And they, of course, did. They're kids. And so he goes in and he does that. And the woman working in the store, you know, he bought some candy. And as he was walking out, I guess he made a comment bye baby and he was just trying to show off in front of his cousins being a 14 year old boy right right and he was just talking to his friends and joking around well she told her husband he did some inappropriate things to her that he grabbed her that he made like some really rude comments and from there she planted a seed in her husband's head and i just imagine men in that time white men i don't know for some reason just to be like you know, you're my woman and I would never let a black man talk to you. I just, I don't know why that came to my head. No, I think that's so real. Very possessive and very, the woman is subservient, very religious based. This isn't an anti-religious comment. That is just a very, very common religious theme that women are subservient. And in the fifties, that was a very dominantly religious time. And also like then the added complexity of you were talking to a black human being like we're gonna ignore man woman anything else like it does not matter child child we're ignoring that you have possessive subservient 
and racist as fuck. That is the equation we're looking at. Right. And I mean, he was able to go in and make a purchase, but I'm sure they were able to change the narrative as they wanted it and take something very innocent to blow it up out of proportion when she was talking to her husband. So she relays this story and four days later, her husband, Roy Bryant comes down with his his uh friend or someone else i forgot who but yeah they come and they track him down at his uncle's house poor emmett he's at his uncle's house with his family probably even forgot that that even happened oh i'm sure i'm confident remember what i'm doing five minutes ago but here he is this teenage boy he's probably like what did i eat for breakfast i don't know same right (laughs) and he's with his family he's just enjoying time there in a new you know he's in a new state and that's exciting for kids but that was very concerning and his uncle had a horrible horrible feeling about it so he sees this white man at the door and his uncle is just like no this is this no he's not going to go with you. The guy's saying, hey, I want to talk with him right now. I want to I want to see him right now. His uncle really put up a fight. But unfortunately, these guys got to him and they ended up kidnapping him. And his family never saw him alive again. Was one of these men a police officer? I actually don't know that. I okay. tried to find more of a police presence in this, but I couldn't because I'm going to assume that regardless of his, who was his family going to call? Hey, my nephew was kidnapped by a white guy. I don't think that would have been kosher for them. I don't think they would have taken that. Yeah, I would agree. Thank you for that honesty and clarification though. And I would actually argue even if one of them had been a police officer at that time, information and and record tracking was so easy to manipulate that at this point, who knows what kind of degradation has been done to that case. Right. So they took him, they drove him around town and they were beating him. And he was discovered three days later near a riverbed, which was about 20 miles south from where his uncle's house was in Money, Mississippi. So they took him on a journey around. But I think what the core of the problem here is he was a teenager. He was black, but they didn't just beat him. They beat him so severely that he was almost unrecognizable, even in his Date of death. He was 14. He was 14. And for anybody who has never seen a photo of Emmett Till, I really recommend that you don't go look if you have a weak stomach because he actually doesn't even look human and it's heartbreaking and disgusting and terrible. Not that he is, but what happened to him is. Right. The damage that these these two men did to a child is just unfathomable correct and here's the thing too even back then his family couldn't call somebody for help because like you said who are they going to call the cops cops aren't going to support them and that's still something that rings very true today in a lot of communities You're right. There's an instilled fear, I feel like, that some people are really afraid to call the police just because they're afraid of what's going to be the aftermath of that call. I agree completely. And it's not only the aftermath of the call, it's truly the gamble of, am I going to get a good cop or am I going to get a racist asshole? Am I going to get someone who hates me because of the way that I look, right? Which is truly the argument that I make anytime anybody comes at me saying blue lives matter. Again, you guys, back to my disclaimer. I am not anti-cop. I am anti-policing. I disagree with the structure of policing the way that it exists today. But I really recognize, quote unquote, blue lives 
is not a thing, okay? That's a choice. That's a career choice. As a lawyer, I don't get like lawyer life matters. Like that's not that's not something that happens for me, okay? There isn't a teacher's lives matter. And I'm not saying that those lives don't matter. I am not saying police lives don't matter, but it isn't the same conversation as when we say black lives matter because black people are in fact black. That is what as a society and as a country we have given them as an identifying factor. They cannot change their skin. They cannot be something other than what they are, which is themselves. We can't punish them for that as a society, and yet we do. We choose that. So I really think that this is an important piece of this conversation, both in a historical sense, in a perspective sense, in a racial injustice sense, and truly just in a systemicness as a whole, and really identifying when we talk about systemic racism, and we talk about police officers, and we talk about the perceived and very valid fears of the black community and the brown community in our country, I think it's really important to recognize that this is this way because dominant culture has assured that it is this way. So, I would really like to use the Emmett Till story, police brutality or not police brutality, I have heard both sides of that story. I really appreciate, Kat, what you brought to it and the historical research that you brought to it. Again, you guys, shout out to A Few Bad Apples. If you would like to hear the Emmett Till story in its entirety, which I sincerely recommend, please go check out A Few Bad Apples and Kat's Patreon page because that's new and she deserves your love and attention and support because her show is actually creating real change and I'm just a huge fan of that. What I would like to use Emmett Till's story for other than truly an educational experience to how horrific racism has been in our country for a very long time, I would like to bring up the argument that a lot of people, I myself included at one point in my life, default to when talking about police brutality. And that is, there is two sides to every story. Are you ladies familiar with the concept of two sides to every story? Yes. I yes. am. I use that a lot in my my episodes. I think that's very interesting. So again, shout out to our white privilege episode. We do talk about this. This is actually on the pyramid of white supremacy under minimization. And I'm not accusing anybody of that. Again, I myself have been at fault of this at a time when I was unawakened. Also, shout out to our white privilege episode. I hate the word woke. I just don't like the word. It's gross to me. I don't like it in my mouth. But previous to becoming woke, I used this all the time because I didn't know any better. So this thing, I'm going to read it because I wrote it and I wrote it so that I didn't fuck it up while having a very casual conversation with you. But I feel very strongly about this concept and I really just, I'm just going to start it, okay? I'm a little nervous about it because it, again, it, they're my words and it's my perspective, but this is worth talking about and this is a behavior that is worth correcting. What I wrote states, the easiest justification for the dominant public when faced with the news of yet another report of police violence is the concept of, quote, there are two sides to every story. This is minimization. This is a function of white supremacy and is directly related to why this behavior is tolerated in our society. 
Like I said, I've done this and I'm ashamed that I've contributed to the problem. The truth is there really are two sides to the story and that's the truth every time. There's a side where the police officers are public servants and they've been sworn to quote, protect and serve. What y'all fail to realize though is when they take that oath, it means for all people. That includes black people, trans people, sick people, homeless people. I could go on literally forever. As a police officer, it is not their role to determine who is worth saving and who is not. And if you believe that the police eliminating members of non-dominant cultures is them doing their job, that is because you have the privilege and delusion that these people are not worthy of living. The police serve the dominant culture's interests in most cases, like a personal street cleaning service. And that, that's just not their fucking job. They're here to serve and protect. And that means everyone. The second side of the story is that the victim is someone's someone and that's it that's all there is to that side of the story that's someone's son someone's daughter someone's sister uncle husband mother friend lover family it doesn't matter what if that someone was your someone what if elijah mcclain was your 23 year old son with autism who had limited cognitive ability in a moment of surprise and fear and didn't recognize how to react to the police and it cost him his life what if trayvon martin was your 17 year old brother who was shot for walking through a park while carrying a bag of skittles what if brianna taylor were your girlfriend and you were kenneth walker and you had to live the rest of your life with the image of the woman you love dying in front of your eyes while it took the police over 30 minutes to get Brianna medical attention? What if you were the mother of Jacob Blake's children and for the rest of their lives, you know that they'll never stop having nightmares from the day they saw their daddy get shot in the back seven fucking times? How would you ever be able to look at your children's faces without seeing that fear that took away their innocence forever? The truth is that there is two sides to every story, but this side, this side that we're talking about right now, this side asks you to find your humanity, your morality, your compassion. That side that no one talks about because it's uncomfortable for dominant culture to look at. That is why the argument of there are two sides to every story is minimization and it's completely invalid. And that's how I feel about that. I agree with all that and that was so well said. As you were talking about that Celeste, I was thinking about Ryan Whittaker, a white guy who showed up to a heavy knock on his door with his gun, as is within his rights as a legal gun owner, who was immediately shot and killed by the police. So his case wasn't really talked about either. It's just, it's truly bad apples across all areas, and it impacts everybody, and everybody should be pissed about it. I agree completely. Because when you make the claim that there are two sides to every story, when you make that argument, you're also making the argument that the officer had the right to take this person's life, any person's life. Like it's not just a white versus black thing or a cop versus black thing because you're totally right. It's absolutely not. This is for anybody. But that's really what that argument comes down to when you really boil it is did this officer have a right to take this person's life? Yes or no? The answer is always no. That's not what officers are out here to do. There are 
really bad people out in the world without question. I'm not ignorant to that. And police officers, again, like we said, are exposed to those people all the fucking time, okay? However, we have this thing called the justice system, and that's made up of laws and good intention. And that is meant to be a just base for the decisions of other unbiased members of society. When a police officer kills someone, they not only took their life, but they took away the opportunity for good people to be recognized as good people from a societal view. The quote-unquote other side of the story is that this person's life mattered. That's it. It's not their past. It's not their record. It's not their choices that they made to get them to this point. It doesn't, none of that is important. Police do not have the right to play judge, jury, and executioner. There are both sides to the story, but really, there's really only one that matters, and that is my point. I really want everybody out there in listener world, whether you ask yourself the question of what happened or what is the other side of the story, really have that conversation with yourself and recognize it doesn't matter what was leading up to that moment, okay? Right, wrong, or indifferent? Police officers themselves have no right to take a person's life. I concur with that thought 99.9% of the time, unless there's a situation where other people are truly in danger. Like school shooters, take them out. I'm all for it. Hi, welcome to me being black and white here. That was the rabbit hole I was going to go down. I, I was like, well, you know, it. I think it's a you have to be there moment. But in the cases that we're seeing from everything that I've seen, I don't think it's justifiable. Every case that I brought forward, I've been fired up about. I mean, yeah. there might be a case exactly. where a guy is literally exactly. going to kill an officer. Like there's a standoff and then, you know, it's a make or break moment. I would be okay with that because that would be what I would do if I had a gun. I would be like, fuck it. I'm going to kill this exactly. guy. You know? Exactly. So I feel like the circumstance, the ones in my stories are not favorable and they always have the reasons for why they, why it happened. But, you know, and so there goes really... to that two sides thing. I really respect those opinions and those perspectives because they are yours and because you're entitled to them. I, however, disagree with them and I would like to very respectfully share why. And I'm of the position that I disagree with those instances of justified police execution or violence or anything, right? I understand what you're saying and I agree. The police are here to protect and serve. Totally. On board with you 100%. But what I really struggle with is the police have this training that we've already spent time talking about. Supposedly, they are quote-unquote prepared to handle the worst of the worst. I'm not saying that's legitimate, okay? I'm not saying that there's any way that you could possibly ever prepare a human being to be subjected to what police officers are subjected to every single day of their career. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, however, is police officers are trained to shoot with precision. Why are police officers trained to shoot to kill, but not shoot to maim? Like, you could very easily take down a bank robber or a potential murder suspect by shooting him in the leg or the arm, and guess what? Then they're down for the count. Cool. I can handle that suspect at that point. That is different to me. For a police officer to react and shoot to kill, I think is wrong. Very, very wrong. I disagree with that. I also disagree with these are the men and women who are supposed to be responsible for our society and they're human beings. 
I know that. I recognize that. I appreciate that. But as a society, we are told to trust these human beings and respect these human beings and bow down to these human beings because that's the expectation that we have created in our society. And those human beings are the most prepared out of any other person outside of a military national defense capacity to react to situations like this and to handle them within X capacity. They are literally trained for these moments of extreme adrenaline and high velocity and potential danger. They are literally submerged in the training for that experience. Am I saying that that's right? No, I'm not. But I'm saying that they have more experience than I do in that. And I'm saying with all of that experience, you still have a trigger finger? How does that happen? Can I interject? Yeah. I yeah. actually, um, from what I've learned, which I was misinformed about from the center of justice training that I'm going to be working with, they told me that police officers actually are really not trained. If that doesn't make you feel any better. It makes me feel significantly worse, Kat. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm but um, yeah, they actually receive such minimal training that it is alarming. So I'm not trying to justify their purposes. But what I found out when talking to the founder, he was telling me that they are trained to react as if they were going to die. So that is the only thing that they are really trained on. He said that they receive such minimal training that a hairdresser actually receives exponentially more training than a police officer. They, they will receive out hundreds and hundreds of hours of training to do someone's hair. But we have a police officer who was in a crash course. I don't know, even know what particularly things they teach them in about eight weeks, eight to maybe 12, depending on the place. But it's it's actually alarming and it's shocking. And he told me that there are some departments in the country that have no training, that there are people out there with guns under some legal law enforcement branch, and they, they've never had any training. So I don't know. Um, I don't think that they actually are as prepared as we might assume they are. I really appreciate that you said that because prior to us calling you, we did talk about education, but not in that same context. So I really, really appreciate that you brought that up and that you shared that with us because I think that that actually just asserts our concerns that we talked about, again, prior to calling you, but neither here nor there because like you guys, we talked about the six months of training and the six core aspects of the training that they get. And now Kat is sharing this information with us, which literally just makes the entire situation that much worse. The entire perspective. I wasn't even aware of it until I talked to Randy, the, the founder of the organization. And he sent me this long pamphlet and I went through the whole thing and I was just like mind blown. I actually wanted to send it to you before the episode of Shut Up. It was totally mind blowing, like just all the little facts and statistics that we assume as a society that this department has it together when in fact it it, it, it doesn't. Yeah. And this is who we're trusting our lives and our safety and our homes and our children and our communities with. And I'm not saying that that trust is misplaced. I'm saying that the expectation that society has of this institution, that is misplaced. And we should add that we're expecting that the institution has its shit together, basically, and that exactly. they know what they're doing from the bottom all the way to the top. And that's not necessarily the case. And that's why I feel like we need to put it out there. And I'm really happy this all meshes in with what we've been talking about today, because honestly, it's 
it's a it's a nut roll. I, I just can't believe that it really is this severe from the get go. Agreed. Yeah, it's an insane clusterfuck. Can we call it a nut roll now? Can we call it that? My husband always uses that word and I was like, <laughs> you know what? This is a nut roll. This is the perfect opportunity to use nut roll. I love it. <laughs> So the next piece, I I actually think that this is a really good launching point for the next piece of the research that I did because I'm over here of the position that I don't hate cops. I recognize there's a lot of fucking problems in policing. I recognize this is built on a shit foundation. There's a lot of components here, but I really want to spend some time talking about something else that I think is incredibly important, and that is cops' mental health in general. I have a new disclaimer for this section of information that is really, really important to me and I would like to share that. And the disclaimer is this. I need to say this. I recognize again that police officers truly do see the worst evils there are, like literally all the time. The movies aren't right, documentaries don't do the job justice, and they are not capturing it correctly. I, like I said before, have been in a ride-along with an officer that I deeply respect. We worked the 11 to 7 shift, and I was excused at 4 a.m. after my officer was too fucked up from a call that we had gone to where he had made a mistake because he was so worried worried about protecting me in that moment and he reacted. He's a really, really good man who made a mistake and he is deeply ashamed of it. No one in what I witnessed was severely injured, but both my friend and the victim needed medical attention. That moment has never left me. Multiply that experience by real trauma, real evil on both sides of the badge. Death, pain, suffering, hatred every day of your career. Do you think that you could unsee that? Do you think that you wouldn't change that wouldn't change the very makeup of who you are to your core? Wouldn't that be terrifying to be around that, knowing that every corner there might be another threat or a PTSD trigger which results in the exact same reaction? These men and women are some of the strongest humans that live on the planet. To be able to carry that weight and still be able to live a healthy, beautiful, successful life with family and kids and hopes and dreams, that's an incredible feat. It really is. But strong is not the same as invincible. And at some point, the human spirit can only take so much. Someone's sanity and judgment and morality can warp, which isn't a testament of strength. It's a testament of being human. This must be understood before I can share the following statistics and research about mental health and the police. Because, again, we're talking about human beings. Are we in a good place to move forward with some statistics and numbers and some health facts? Yes. You know me, I love my statistics. Statistics. I haven't sang yet in this episode. I wasn't feeling very sing-songy, but here I am, sing-songy. All right, so I found this information about police mental health and statistics from Helio.com. That's H-E-A-L-I-O.com. And the episode, what the fuck is wrong with me? The article is called Most Police Never Seek Mental Health Care Despite Apparent Need, which I was like, obviously that's the article we need to look at. So some points from this article include routine mental health screening of police officers may be warranted in law enforcement agencies according to the results of a survey study published by published in JAMA Network Open. JAMA is J-A-M-A. 
I have no idea what that is, though. Per Dr. Caitlin K. Jettelina of the Department of Epidemiology, Human Genetics, and Environmental Sciences at the University of Texas Health Science Center and her colleagues, say, quote, Evidence suggests that exposure to law enforcement work is associated with an increase in many forms of stress, including physical, psychological, and anticipatory stress. Officers are exposed to traumatic calls for service on a daily basis, including child abuse, domestic violence, car crashes, and homicide. Repeated exposure to these stressors and events may be associated with the development of mental illness, such as anxiety, depression, somatization, which is the expression of psychological or emotional factors as physical or semantic symptoms. For example, stress can cause some people to develop headaches, chest pain, back pain, nausea, fatigue. This definition came from news medical.net. Other psychological concerns can include post-traumatic stress disorder and burnout. According to survey data of 434 very courageous police officers, 12% reported a lifetime mental health diagnosis, 26 had positive screening results for current mental illness symptoms, 17% had sought mental health care services in the past 12 months. This study was done by Helio specifically, which is again where the information came from. Reports of a prior study showed that twice as many police officers died by suicide versus dying in the line of duty in 2018. Twice as many. Holy fuck. That's insane. However, research is sparse regarding patterns of barriers of mental illness and characteristics of officers who experience interest in seeking help. So let's talk about those 434 officers for a second, okay, where this study was done. I had this moment where I was like, that's not a lot of officers. Like, I'm just really confused. That's a very small number. But the research that I did on the research that they did see what I did there, all kinds of research. These 434 officers were all from one singular large department as a control group so that they could control the environment, the crime exposure, etc. So they really like took a sample from the same place. So everybody had the same experiences and exposure to a degree. The report also included the results of five focus groups that included 18 officers specifically. And these studies identified four primary barriers in mental health services access. Those barriers included... One, inability of an officer to identify when they are experiencing a mental illness. So like an easy example of that is alcoholism. There are significant research studies to show that there is a very high percentage of law enforcement agents who have an issue with alcoholism. So I just think that that's a very important call out. Like if you suffer from that, that is a mental illness and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you for that. But you do need help for it. And obviously, if you are experiencing that, you're not performing at your best. And as a police officer, you can't afford to not be performing at your best. So that in itself is a whole nother layer of shit that is piled on top of the issues that you're already facing as a police officer. The next barrier is concerns regarding confidentiality, which like 
duh. Who would ever want to be the police officer who goes to a therapist and says, I experience these things and I'm scared and I need help. Of course, they're going to be worried that they're going to get tattled on by their fucking therapist. And I'm sure that in some situations, that's very real. Yeah, it could ruin their livelihood. It reminded me of the Born Suicide episode that I did with this guy who was actually drugging his wife and raping her and video recording it. Oh, Jesus, fuck. He was talking to his therapist about it. And I mean, later, eventually, they shared some of what he was writing in his journal. She suggested, hey, you should write write these feelings out. But it kind of reminded me of all of these things that you're saying. And he had a history in his past before he was an officer of chemical dependency. Like he was on drugs. He was even like lifting weights. So he was on like whatever they do um, steroids he was on all sorts of stuff so I mean I kind of think like there was a whole factor a whole bunch of factors that really tie into that but he actually ended up committing suicide and annihilating his whole family so but the signs were there the signs were there this is the uh season one I believe episode 18 but yeah he, he the signs were there the mental health signs people were like this dude's not right. You know, like things were off to other officers, people who actually genuinely were kind of like, he seems a little intense or, you know, things like that. But they kind of just played it off like, well, I don't know, maybe that's his personality or something. Yeah. And then people don't act on it. It's part of the job. It's just normal. It's like an assumed normal almost that they, I mean, obviously his case is different. There's something clearly wrong with him, but it's almost part of the career. But it's not different. Well, I mean, he had he had predisposed items. Exactly. Right. He was definitely predisposed, but he also had like a lot more of the factors than probably the typical officer. But like you said, he's it's not different. Like these signs were there. Oh, yeah. And he actually at some point was reprimanded too for things. But then they kind of let him go because he was he took a dog that he found on the street to some remote area and shot it. What Jesus the fuck? Christ. I know. So, I mean, there were signs. And I mean, I didn't want to cut you off, but I think in terms of mental health, I think that taking the knowledge I have from my husband, my husband being in the army, they do a lot of like assessments, like all the time, like make sure they always have like sexual harassment trainings. They always do like suicide prevention. Like there's always these check-ins, I guess. And I'm just wondering why can't we do that across the nation in our departments? I think that also is a huge reform that might not be so hard to implement. They check in, they talk to the wife, they know who the whole family is. They know who I am, even though I don't want to know them, but. (laughs) But they know me. They have my email address. Like they have contact. They know more than just him, but they know my name, my kids' names. And like, that's the army. But why can't we just do that on a smaller scale in the departments you know check in with these people every maybe it's too much to say every four months i was thinking every quarter i was talking to my husband about it he goes that's too much but can you do it more than the first time you hire them because they're not going to be the same person after you hire them. I agree completely. Yep, agreed. And I also, I think about they might not even be in a relationship or married or have the normal, this is something we are going to talk about, but like they start as as 18-year-olds, 21-year-olds, and like they're just in the grand scope of life, they're fucking babies, right? So that's not fair to assess them at that time in this scope and only 
at that time. Should they be assessed at that time? Of course they should, right? That's that's the difference of what separates a school shooter who grows up to want to be a police officer from a good human being who wants to carry on a family legacy of being a police officer and protecting their community and this very honorable, intentional thing. But let's be clear, both of those people go to the police academy and both of those people end up with jobs and badges. Right, yep. exactly. And there was a quote from my, I'm always citing my episodes, but there's so much stuff, you know. Girl, I do that all the time. Don't even worry about it. From the Buddy Boys, um, when those, when that whole group of officers just was totally corrupt, they were even told at their graduation from the academy that some of you will end up in prison. Mm -hmm. What an endorsement to give our law enforcement officers. I know, but that was back in the 70s. So I don't know how high the standard was. No, just kidding. (laughs) The bar was pretty low. The third barricade is that there's this belief that a mental health professional is unable to relate to their occupation, meaning that there's no way that somebody who sits behind a desk could ever understand the demands or the trauma that comes with the job. So there's no point in speaking to someone because they would never understand. The fourth barrier is the notion that officers who seek mental health services may be unfit for duty. That in itself is a huge stigma within the police community that must go away and let's just go back to my entire disclaimer about this section of the notes these people are human beings they're bound to make mistakes they're bound to be flawed and we as a society expect so much from them it is not fair for us as a society to expect officers to be perfect and to make good decisions at all times if at the same exact moment we are making them believe that if they get help they're considered weak or unfit for duty. I personally would feel better if every single officer out there ever in the history of life got mental health help whether they needed it or not. I would feel better about that than knowing that they are afraid to get help and understanding that they're not prepared to really seriously do their jobs because what if they're not in a place to do so? That just as a citizen of this country that really actually is really scary. It's 2021 can we just fucking normalize mental health help finally really oh my gosh seriously four kids too i'll just throw that out there absolutely without question that's definitely a thing yep everybody all the people any age all the people So really, where this mental health research brought me and why I wanted to include this is because the moral of this part of the story is good cops who need help don't get help because it makes them appear like bad cops. And I just want to be really clear, that's fucking stupid. That is fucking stupid. In a related article, Dr. M. Bolenti emphasized the importance of addressing mental health barriers for police officers. Education concerning mental health and effective treatment is needed for police officers. The stigma attached to mental illness and the reluctance of officers to seek help can only lead to further increases of mental strain and suicide among police. Policing is an essential occupation to preserve the rule of law and the those who serve in law enforcement deserve proper protection from the mental strain associated with this task. It is a matter of psychological survival. So dear police officers or anybody who cares about a police officer, please share that message with them. Please internalize that message. Dear anybody who struggles with mental health, please internalize that message. Our mental health is just as important as any other aspect of our health, period. 
Preach. So at this point in the conversation, we have to really put both sides of this conversation together, okay? And we're going to do that really slowly, and we're going to do that together so that we're all on the same page. And I actually think that this is also really important because Kat, our beautiful, lovely, amazing, extra, fantastic special guest, was not here for the first part. So I think that this recap is going to be really important before I go into my very last piece of research and information. So let's start with with the very basic point of being a cop is one of the hardest careers that there is in our society without question. Okay, can we all agree on that? Yes. Okay. My next point is the majority of cops really are good people or at least they start out that way. Are we all in agreement there also? Yes. Yes. Fantastic. The structure and intention of policing is archaic, ineffective, one-sided, and systemic as fuck. I think that it's pretty evident that we have discovered that to be true as well in this research. Agreed. I think the intention was good, but it's not executed well at all. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I agree completely. My next concept that I want to make sure that we highlight as part of this train of thought is good people are doing dirty work with the intention of doing good, okay? But this makes good people susceptible to the impression that dirty work is good. And that's a very fine line that people tow every single day. We're not going to get into that, but really if that thought kind of sits weird in your brain or tickles the hair on the back of your neck, really sit with why. Because there are good police officers out there who are bamboozled and manipulated and lied to into doing dirty work, into doing what bad cops would do. And it's not fair to look at a good cop and say, that they're a bad cop because they fell under the impression of a bad cop or fuck maybe a bad leader maybe a bad sergeant who knows how high these chains go up so really like that's an important piece that we need to call out also uh it does go high for the record without question I also think it's important to add to that piece specifically. We need to especially consider the age at which most people enter this career. These are very young, impressionable minds that are joining this career. Imagine that mind being molded by a bad cop. Guess what that breeds? Bad cops. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm saying there is no room for bad cops in this entire equation. One bad apple spoils the bushel. Yes. Yes, indeed. Speaking of entering the career, let's go back to education. There's not enough. Point blank, period. That's all she wrote. It's not comprehensive. It's only six months and it's not fair. Rewind. Go back. Listen to all the things we've said this whole time about education and the lack thereof. So I think it's really interesting that you had used the example of a bank robber previously because I included that in my example of a well-intended application of qualified immunity, which would be like if a cop unintentionally shot a bank robber fleeing a scene. He didn't mean to kill that person in that moment. It shouldn't be viewed as a murder. He made an honest mistake and he's not here to intentionally kill people. That I recognize in that instance qualified immunity does make sense. Do I agree with it? No, I don't. But I understand why it's there and I think it's important for everybody to hear me say that. As somebody who is obviously biased because I think this protection is really ridiculous, I also recognize its intention 
And in this application, I wouldn't want a good police officer to be off the street because they made a mistake or something went wrong. I personally don't want that. And I think that's important for our listeners to hear also. Agreed. But here's the but. Qualified immunity got all kinds of fucked up. So let's go back to our fractures. That's where that happened. Now we're introducing genuinely bad cops to this equation. This whole conversation we've just had is a math equation. And now we're adding in genuinely bad human beings who are wearing a badge. Humans with God complexes and racism and homophobia and righteousness embedded in their DNA. What do you think a handful of bad cops are going to do to the environment, the character, the morality, and the psychological well-being of good cops who are experiencing mental health issues? that can make them vulnerable to manipulation, hive mentality, trauma bonding, sacrificial loyalty, all of this paired with no sleep, no peace, no help, overwhelmed, and they are in the most thankless job our society holds. Those good cops who are suffering from mental illness now have been molded to also have to see the system they virtue fail its citizens in every way that you can imagine. The justice system is not real. Justice is a myth. I would like everybody to hear me say that. That is a construct that we have created as a society to pacify ourselves. Justice is only as true and as just as the person sitting on the bench delivering it. So I would really like to offer that it is this equation that gives us the proof that the other side of the story is just as important to recognize. The police officer side is just as important to recognize as the victim side. Good cops are the victims of bad cops and a broken system, just like the rest of us. So I really struggle with hating on cops in general for that reason. And I really thought that was an important message to share in this episode as well. I agree 100%. Thank you. So are we ready for the last piece of this research that is really going to tie this all together and really bring forward the villain of this story? Yep. Yes. Magic. We are going to redirect to qualified immunity and specifically its application with bad cops. These facts and statistics came from StopSexualAbuseNow.com, and the article is titled Police Officer Sexual Abuse. So uh, I'm going to start with a fun fact, which is not so fun at all. In 35 states, qualified immunity is how bad police officers are able to assault detainees, which can include rape. Shout out to my earlier comment. This is where we are going to learn about that information. So how this really works, now that we've talked about qualified immunity, what it means, what it looks like, and the actual application of this loophole, let's let's talk about this and, and how this exists in, again, 35 states of our 50 As long as the cop says that the sex was consensual, there were no rights violated, which means there was no precedence. Wash, rinse, repeat our entire conversation before about the fractures, all of them. The law states that a police officer cannot rape a detainee. However, it does not say that they cannot have a sexually consenting experience with a detainee. I just really question that in general, but... Okay. Now, regardless of what the detainee really wants, like they could be totally opposed to it, but if the officer says, right? Exactly. That's exactly the piece. It goes purely based on what the officer said happened and the reason that it is 
only what the officer said happened is because this person is a detainee. So potentially you're looking at a criminal suspect who at that point their credibility is immediately shot. Really in a court of law a police officer's credibility will always be ranked above anybody else's with the exception of doctors or expert witnesses that are called to testify. And that is because of the perceived and expected presentment that cops have in our community, right? They're supposed to be the most honest, the most loyal, the most respectable members of our society who keep us safe and enforce the laws. So if that person is coming before you in a court of law, guess what? The judge is going to take that person's side every single time because that's what they're supposed to do. This reminded me of the case I did on Daniel Wilkie. He was, this officer was just like really like violating everyone's rights. He was like pulling people over. He was doing illegal strip searches. He illegally baptized a woman and was groping her. What the fuck? Yes. He pulled these kids out of a car and started groping them. Um, But like, like you said, if you're the detainee or at least the person under suspicion, he really, he could do whatever he wanted. Whatever the fuck he wanted. Oh my God, that's insane. And it took a lot of people coming forward to get anything happening to that man. He did it for so long. This episode was insane. It was the most unreal thing I've ever heard of. And it's going into what you're saying. And it's just, it's ringing true. Yeah. I remember that episode too. And I just cannot believe that there's not a law in place that says no sex, no fucking with the detainee. I don't care if it's consensual or not. You don't sleep with who you're detaining. This, oh my God. Okay. Anyways, please continue. No, no, no. I love all these points because this actually rolls into my next point, which is super fucking important. Bad cops. Again, you guys, we're only talking about bad cops at this point in the conversation. Bad cops have so many categories of victim pools, such as sex workers, addicts, people who are homeless, people who have existing criminal records, and sometimes vulnerable minors. So really, Kat, your point is so legitimate. A bad cop who knows how to play this system, who works this system against members of society like us who don't know that this system exists, everyone is a potential victim. But then you really look at these categories specifically, really answer this question for me. Who are you going to believe if they're standing in front of you? A prostitute or a decorated police officer? The guy that I'm talking about, he turned around after he did all this to them and wrote them citations. Fuck that bitch. (laughs) And I laugh not because it's funny, but because it's fucking unbelievable. Absolutely. We say this all the time. We didn't say this in this episode yet, but uh, for anybody who's new, we laugh when we're uncomfortable. I laugh when I'm uncomfortable all the time. I definitely recognize that Kat just laughed because she was uncomfortable. So shout out to uncomfortable laughing. So really my question is that I asked myself as I was bringing this concept together is why does this behavior go unreported? The answer is that means that you'd have to talk to your rapist buddies in order to start the process in which regardless they're still protected by qualified immunity. This concept of qualified immunity also applies to things outside of rape. So Allie you had made that comment before of like don't sleep with your detainees like that is the same as don't steal their drugs don't don't do their drugs. Don't, I mean, there's all, don't beat the shit out of them. There are literally so many concepts that this applies for. That should be written down somewhere. Why is that not written down somewhere? Allie's face. (laughs) (laughs) I just just cannot, you guys. I just can't. I just can't. 
Shit, it's so stupid. That really does bring me to the place of like good cops know we're just again, we're going to roll with the rape thing because I said that so casually. It wasn't even funny. I don't mean it casually. I'm really sorry. But good cops, to your point, Allie, aren't having sex with their detainees. It's not even a question. It doesn't matter how attractive that person is. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter. Good, respectable police officers are also good, respectable human beings. And do you know what good and respectable human beings don't do? They don't sleep with someone who's in handcuffs involuntarily. Word. Here, here. Here, here. So really, you guys, that was my research about all the things, about this entire perspective, about why we need to be having conversations about this, increasing education, increasing public knowledge of our rights and the rules and expectations that police officers have to follow and are held to. There's literally so much here. This systemic racism aspect, there's just, there's just so much that I feel as though our society wants to pick a side on. And I'm in favor of picking a side, okay? But truly, what I'm in favor of is punishing and persecuting bad cops. That's what I'm in favor of. I want police officers to be successful and be healthy and to help keep our country and our everything safe, right? That's a real thing. But at the same time, I really question the institution and I question the integrity of that institution because of bad apple police officers of the law. And I just don't believe that there's any room for them in this equation. I agree. We need to redo the entire system. It needs to be better. It can't continue this way. No one in their right mind would look at this corrupt system and think it's okay. This is literally what Batman is about. The corruption of Gotham. Real. Are we not learning from comics? Apparently not. Come on, people. I think they need to do it in a way where it's, because it's not going to happen overnight. But I do think, let's start with the mental health. Because I think like that is the forefront of where where we could really capture who is bad at the beginning. Or if your assessment turns out bad, don't let them in. Put them in another position. Like that's, I think we can really, really revamp the system just by looking at the mental health system. I mean, that's my, my personal opinion. And I'm not an expert in any way in this area. But from what I've seen, I feel like we could have alleviated a lot of people from dying. I agree with literally everything you said. And I'm also not a mental health expert but I do recognize when people are mentally healthy things work a lot better Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of times there's those red flags there like in that Bourne case I mentioned that they just ignored like people they know something's wrong but you know if we can have a closer set of eyes on that or have a department that specifically does that maybe we can filter out these things and really put the good apples out and make them more dominant than the ones that might not be fit for that job. Agreed. And it would help elevate the good apples too, to be in a better place mentally to address everything they have to address. So yes, I'm all for it. Mental health on the table right now. I second the mental health without question. The other thing that I think is a very, I'm going to say easy, but I don't actually mean easy, but necessary and quote unquote easy thing to address is the education. Why I I go back to the hardest fucking job there is on the planet gets a six months craft course. What the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Why does my hairdresser have more education, right? Absolutely. 500, 500 something hours, or I don't know what the guy told me. I think I want to say like maybe in the thousands hours to do hair versus this six week little crash course thing. So 
And not only that, but let's let's just roll with that example. Your hairdresser had to pass different levels of technique. Hairdressers know an insane amount of math and science and it's actually insane and I have no idea how they do it and cheers to hairdressers because I would never be successful in that. But they have to pass exams and they have to meet these expectations and check-ins consistently. And I'm not saying police officers don't have to do that. What I'm saying is from an educational structure, six months to learn six core functions that literally set you apart from the rest of humanity is not enough time. You are given a badge and a gun and a car and are told to go be a superhero when you are young and impressionable and you truly may think you're out to do good. I personally have set out on so many ventures with the intention of doing good and I have fallen victim to bad fucking people and I made bad fucking choices because of it. The number of good police officers that are out there are fucking real and they unfortunately are susceptible to the impression and also the ramifications that come with being surrounded by bad cops and I just go back to this profession cannot afford to have bad cops what would happen if a doctor just accidentally quote-unquote started killing people on their table that would be malpractice suit would it not that is yes and there's a podcast about that too oh excellent check out what what is that podcast plug it dr death dr death shout out to dr death but real Okay, there don't get to be, quote unquote, bad apple doctors. There are not, quote unquote, bad apple firefighters. Am I saying that there are only good people in those professions? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But how many songs have been written about the fire department saying, fuck the fire department? I don't know any songs about fuck the fire department. I know like 8,000 songs about fuck the police. It's just not the same. It's not the same conversation because truly there's just so much more abuse of power that's available within the policing system. Some of those who burn crosses are the same that work forces. That's real. And I go back to this education structure only being six months because think about it. Let's pretend for a second that a bad apple officer really wanted to be a doctor. Okay, so now we, we're going to just call it this, a bad apple doctor, which there are. That's a real thing. I'm not denying that. But a bad apple doctor has to go through significant amounts of education, has to go in front of significant members of boards and hospitals and other people with this practice under their belt to be approved to be a doctor. Really, if somebody's in this because they have a God complex or they just have a trigger finger or they really just want to inflict their beliefs on other people and make the world what they see it to be, they're not going to last 12 years in med school. They're not. That's not going to happen. But to ask someone with a God complex and some mental health issues, give them a gun and a badge and say, hey, six months, that's all you got to serve and then you're good to go. Sure. I can keep my urges under control for six months. I don't have to be a psycho for six months. I can keep it. I got this. I'm good. That's not the same conversation. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about that. I loved everything about that rant. So ladies, I would like to start the part of our episode where we talk about what we learned here today. And Kat, because you are our incredible guest and you brought so much value and amazing perspective to this, I'd like to start with what you learned here today. You schooled me on qualified immunity. I really didn't know all of that and what it entailed. And I'm just so shocked that I actually want to go find a case where it was 
a total factor in the story. But yeah, no, thank you guys so much for having me on. I, I really feel like this conversation is so important. And I think we took it on a really deeper level that, you know, people looking this kind of story up would never have known. You know, they never would have found this. This is like a nugget that's hidden under so much other stuff. Yeah. And it's not even congruent. I truly, in my research, took the functions of what I know about the activist community and also functions that I know about the police force community and I merged them together to make this completely comprehensive picture which I agree nobody else talks about nobody presents it this way and in presenting it in the fractured version of this perspective that's what truly allows division and allows confusion and allows manipulation of the story because when you look at it the way that we have looked at it here today it's very obvious the problem is not people of color and the problem is not good cops the problem is the institution and that the institution then supports bad cops. That's the conversation we're having. Right. But I really appreciate you guys having me on and just having this uncomfortable conversation at times. Absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we definitely appreciate you being here. Before I tell you guys what I learned today, would you mind plugging your podcast one more time and where everyone can reach you and all the good things? Sure. You can find A Few Bad Apples podcast anywhere that you get your podcast. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and <laughs> anywhere else <laughs> on Instagram at, or I should say on Twitter at Few Apples. Love that. Fantastic. Sorry, I, I got lost in thought. You're fine. Don't worry about it. We fuck up our outro literally every <laughs> single time. You're fine. Allie girl, do you want to tell me what you learned here today? I found so much of the history extremely fascinating and I really appreciate you teaching me all that because as you know, I love learning the backstory behind everything. So I loved all that bit. I'm very glad. And I really appreciate you saying that the research and the history perspective itself was really helpful because you guys, I really mean it when I say this episode was part of my DNA. I felt like I didn't really get to experience the passionate side of myself in this and that's okay. That's okay in this episode. If you want to hear the passionate side of me talking about this, go check out our white privilege episode or honestly any of our episodes in our race series, No Fucks Given November. But I really wanted to be able to have have this conversation from a very level place and I mean to the best of my ability so I appreciate that you appreciated the history and the research because I thought it was really important and like I said before I am really proud of bringing it all together the way that I did because I think it changes the entire conversation yep you did an absolutely phenomenal job with it what did you learn here today that's a really good question um what I really honestly learned here today is that this conversation is not broached correctly. And there's a reason why. The reason is that the people, shout out to Hush Hush Society, who I'm sure has a better name for the people that I'm talking about, but the people who run society, the, the members of power who really run us as a country, they want us to have this conversation to the degree that we are having it outside of this podcast. They want there to be division. They want there to be a fight. They want it to be a conversation that's so black and white and controversial and... Polarizing. Thank you. Polarizing. Difficult to truly wrap your hands around because if we could all have this conversation this way, it's so apparent to find out who the bad guy is. 
And guess who the bad guy is? The system. The entire fucking structure of our country, the judicial system, is at fault for the monster that they've created, which is the loophole that allows bad cops to exist and have careers. And the members of power don't want us to talk about that because that means that they have to take accountability for allowing our country to become this way. They have to make explanations that they don't have at their fingertips or on a teleprompter. What I really learned here today is that this conversation must be had from the perspective that we had it here today. Because if we're not having that conversation that way, we're not talking about the entire story. And that's just not fair. It's not fair to the victims. It's not fair to the victims' families. It's not fair to good cops. It's not fair to good cops' families. It's not fair to society. When we play that game, the only people who benefit are bad cops and a broken system. And I'm just not about that life. That's what I learned here today. Agreed 100%. This episode was a little heavy, but at the same time, I really appreciated that we could have this conversation. I really appreciate the space that we've created and the friends that we've made to help us have such meaningful and informative conversations. And again, just a huge thank you to Kat for being here today. Also, thank you to you, dear listeners, for hanging out with us as usual and sitting with this topic and hopefully learning and growing from it just like I have. And like I have, even though this episode isn't the part that I really grew from, the fact that I could bring this conversation to you today is a testament of my growth because I have been in this position before where this was all completely foreign to me. And the concept of there being two sides to every story and minimization, all that shit, I've been there, which is why I can recognize this conversation so unbiasedly because although those ignorant statements are hard harmful, it doesn't invalidate that there is a sliver of truth to them. And that sliver of truth just gets blown out of proportion more often than not. Yep. Exactly. I also want to share that I really appreciate everybody who listened today, everybody who joined us for this conversation, everybody who came to it with an open mind and with your listening ears on. I hope that this episode really resonates with you the way that it resonates with me and that we can really start talking about how to move forward better, how we can fix things, what we can implement sooner rather than later, how we can look at different things, especially in the climate that we're in right now, I think those conversations are really important. And I hope that I have given you the tools to have an educated and intelligent conversation about these things because those are the kinds of conversations we need to be having on this topic. And I would actually argue on any topic that we cover on our show because really, you guys, what we believe in is thinking for yourself. And I I just don't feel like we live in a place that really encourages that. So thank you for joining us on our exploration of thinking for ourselves. Speaking of having conversations, if you would like to continue the conversation with us or any of our other topics that we cover or any you think we should cover, you can reach out to us on our socials, which are Taboos the Pod on Twitter and Instagram, Taboos on Facebook. It's a group. We're going to kill the page pretty soon. Fair warning. Peace out, Paige. Or taboospodcast at gmail.com. Guys, we also have a new fancy website. So fancy. Some asshole squatter took taboospodcast.com, so it's taboosthepod.com. It's pretty. You can go look at it. Yeah, that's all I got for that. Uh... (laughs) 
We also have a Patreon, which is also pretty. You can go look at that also. There's extra things on there, like hearing Hank walking around in the background like he is right now. Don't you talk to me like that. (laughs) And me voicing Hank like I may or may not have just done. I don't know if I cut it or not. So there's that. But really, guys, we love you. We appreciate each and every one of you. Your listens, your shares, all the feedback. It means more to us than you will ever know. It truly does. We wouldn't be in this place without you guys. And we are so grateful for your open-mindedness, your open hearts, and all of your headphones. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And on that note, do you be taboos. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.